Listen now for God's word to you. This is Jesus speaking, and he says, Do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many dwelling places. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, so that where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way to the place where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you know me, you will know my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have sent and have seen him. This is the word of God for you, the people of God. Thanks be to God. So there's a well-known joke told by the comedian Emo Phillips that perhaps you've heard before. And in it, he says, I saw a man on a bridge one day, and he was about to jump, and I said, no, don't do it. He said, nobody loves me. He said, and I said, God loves you. Do you believe in God? He said, yes. I said, are you a Christian or a Jew? He said, I'm a Christian. I said, me too. What denomination are you? He said, Southern Baptist. Or he said, Baptist. I said, me too. What, Southern Baptist or Northern Baptist? He said, Northern Baptist. I said, me too. Northern, Bapti- Northern conservative Baptist or Northern liberal Baptist? Northern Conservative Baptist, he said, me too. Northern Conservative Baptist, Great Lakes region, or Northern Conservative Baptist, Eastern region? He said, Northern Conservative Baptist, Great Lakes region. Me too, I said. Northern Conservative Baptist, Great Lakes region, Council of 1879, or Northern Conservative Baptist, Great Lakes Council, Great Lakes region, Council of 1912. He said, Northern Conservative Baptist, Great Lakes region, Council of 1912. I said, die, heretic, and I pushed him over. It's funny, because it's true, um, that Christian denominations throughout history have been known for their fighting. I think latest estimates are that that there are globally 40,000 different Christian denominations, if one could even fathom that, 40,000 different Christian denominations, and that there's a history, of course, of disagreements and fighting and arguments between these different denominations. Sometimes that fighting and arguing has become more violent than others. We could think back to the the conflicts between the Catholics and Protestants in places like Northern Ireland. Um, Some of that fighting, though, has been more theoretical and theological. Um, Think about the historic disagreements between Christian denominations around what happens in the Lord's Supper, uh, as if anyone could actually know that. Um, What happens? Is Jesus actually present or is he spiritually present? Is it just a memorial? We've had all of these debates. And in fact, I, I heard once that the Lutherans and the Reformed during the Reformation period, when John Calvin and Martin Luther were still around, that they almost joined their movements together, except they couldn't agree on what happened in the Lord's Supper. Um, so we've had these disagreements historically, uh, but of course in recent decades, there's been the rise in what's known as the ecumenical movement, um, where we've tried to find commonality and unity in our various Christian expressions. And, and I think that the ecumenical movement has been a very good thing for the church. Um, it has not, those denominational distinctives are not nearly as important. It's not nearly as important if you're part of the Northern Conservative Baptist Great Leaks Region Council of 1912 or 1879 or, or whatever it might be. And I think that our church, Greenfield, is a, a testimony to the ecumenical movement that there are people who are part of this congregation who are former Catholics and former fundamentalists and evangelicals and Lutherans or whatever it might be that you have all 
joined here in a Presbyterian church, and I'm not a, a betting person. I don't like gambling. I tried it once and I hated it. But I, would be, I think this is a pretty safe bet to say that none of you are here because you were drawn to the distinctives of the Presbyterian tradition. I'm imagining none of you sat with the Book of Order open and were just drawn to Presbyterian polity, and that's why you're here. None of you, sta- except for Stacy, apparently, um, <laughs> I imagine none of you sat and read Calvin's Institutes of the Christian Religion and thought, man, I really want to be part of the Presbyterian Church. Maybe you did. I'm guessing not. But the reason why you're here is that you found something that connects with your life. You've found relationships. You've found a meaningful place to connect with God. You, you, uh, you want to participate in the, the mission of the church. Those are the sorts of things that have, have drawn us in. And so much less important these days are those denominational distinctives. Um, the ecumenical movement means that uh, we accept the baptisms that happen in other Christian denominations. And in some instances, we are able to um, have open communion, that I could preside at the table of a Lutheran church, for example. Um, the ecumenical movement has been a very good thing for the church. There are uh, now things like the National Council of Churches or the World Council of Churches that seek to, to unite the ministry and the mission of the church together, to find unity and commonality, even as we have these small theological differences. So we have the, the ecumenical movement. Uh, but beyond that, there's an even bigger thing I think that's happened within uh, American religious, uh, the American religious landscape, and that is the rise of religious pluralism. Um, that we are beyond, we are now what's called a post-Christian society. And that might be a new term to some of you. Uh, all that means is that Christianity is now no longer the normative defining feature of our society's life. Um, it used to be that we knew where everybody was at 11 o'clock on Sunday morning. They were at some church, usually some mainline or Roman Catholic church. Uh, but now that's no longer the assumption. Um, people are anywhere on any given Sunday morning. Soccer practice is a place where a lot of people are. Um, that, we're no, that we're no longer a society that's defined by Christianity. That Christendom, as it was once called, has sort of gone away in the last several decades. That at any given day, we interact with people of a variety of different faiths, whether they be Jews or Muslims or Hindus or Buddhists or Wiccans or the largest growing segment of society, the spiritual but not religious. Um, That we live in a religiously pluralistic society, a society where there are many faiths that are present. Um, But of course, Christendom has not gone quietly into the night. Uh, that there are some who want to cling as tightly as they can to the past to try and drag Christendom back into the present. Uh, Perhaps you've heard this term in the news as of late, Christian nationalism. Uh, You probably have heard that in the headlines. And all that means is that there's this group of people that are looking for a prescriptive program from the government to keep Christianity as the normative uh, religion that can be imposed upon other people. Uh, Not all Christian nationalists are looking for a theocratic government, but they are looking for uh, the government to maintain Christianity's privileged position within the public square. Uh, One Christian nationalist was quoted as saying that our Anglo-Protestant heritage is part of our history, and to lose that is our inheritance, and to lose that is to lose our freedom and our sense of identity. Um, This idea that Christianity needs to be imposed upon other people, um, this desire for that. So there's, on that one side, as Christendom has faded away, you have this desire to kind of impose Christianity on everybody else. And then on the other side of it, you have, I think, maybe a more secular uh, idea that 
all religions are just essentially the same, and we should just kind of make them into this amorphous blob of spirituality and lose all of the distinctives of what makes each religion its own. Um, so you have all of this going on. And so the question starts to burn already. What is Christian identity within a religiously pluralistic society? What does Christianity look like when there are so many different faiths that we interact with on a daily basis? Um, what is Christian identity, especially when Jesus makes seemingly exclusivist statements like the one we read here this morning? Uh, John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Uh, what are we supposed to make of a statement like that? And in the sort of borderline fundamentalist tradition that I grew up in, that this one little verse became the defining way that we were supposed to interact with people of other faiths. It became conflated with Jesus being the way, the truth, and life, with Christianity being the one and only true religion. And so everybody else had to be converted. And I remember uh, growing up, I had this little book on my shelf. I can't remember, quite remember the title. I think it was World Religions 101 or something like that. And it was written by a Christian author. And it gave you these little synopses of all the other religions believed which seems silly now because we know how complex religious life is. I mean, how different is Presbyterian, this Presbyterian church, from maybe another Presbyterian church, let alone the different denominations or differences within religions? But I had this little book so I could know everything I need to know about every other religion so I could then convert them. So I was prepared and ready. It sounds embarrassing to say now, but that was the environment that I, that I grew up in. Uh, but I was already starting to feel the tension a little bit between this sort of Christianity is the only way, and everybody else needs to be converted, and the experiences I had in my own childhood, um, that my best friends growing up were both Indian, one was a Hindu, one was a Muslim, and, and they were my friends. We played basketball together, and, and yet the message I was getting was that they needed to be converted. If you want to know what a, how big of a dork I was in high school, um, let me tell you what a fun Friday night looked like. Um, <laughs> It was going to watch Mel Gibson's The Passion of the Christ with my interfaith group of friends. <laughs> um, I think it was like three Muslims, two Hindus, and one other Christian. And we sat there and we endured Mel Gibson's violent depiction of Jesus' final hours, all while I was secretly hoping that that would cause them all to get on their knees and make a confession of faith and convert to Christianity. Um, let me let you in on the surprise. That didn't, that didn't work. Um, So this is the message I, I received growing up, is that everybody else had to be converted, um, that, that Christianity was the one and only true religion, that Jesus was sort of God's cosmic bouncer, um, and that nobody got in unless he said so, unless someone made a confession of faith. But of course, this is a, an incredibly toxic way to use the Bible, right? To, it's called proof texting, where you go and you, you have a preconceived assumption, i.e., that Christianity is the only true religion, and you go and you search in the Bible for a verse that backs up your claim. Um, whenever the Bible is used like this, whenever the Bible is used to, to harm somebody else, alarm bells should be going off in our heads. And whenever the Bible is used in this way, it's an opportunity for us, I think, always to kind of take a big step back, to pan out, to get a picture of what else is going on around that verse. And what I think becomes abundantly and immediately clear is that Jesus is not sitting around with his disciples in this passage, telling them why Christianity is the one and only true religion, because number one, Christianity didn't even exist at that point yet. Nor is he sitting around and saying, next time you're in an interreligious debate, here's a really sick burn for you to win the argument. 
Now, Jesus is still in the upper room at this point, following what we now know as the Last Supper. Uh, the Gospel of John doesn't give us the details of that supper. We get all of those from the other three Gospels. But what John does tell us is that during that supper, Jesus gets up. It's all in the chapter beforehand. Jesus gets up, puts a towel around his waist, gets a, a pitcher of water in a basin, and he begins to wash his disciples' feet. The most servile of tasks in that society. And yet here is Jesus, their rabbi, their teacher, washing their feet. And he says to them that just as I have done this for you, so too must you do for other people. And he gives them the love command. He says that you are to love one another just as I have loved you. And after all of this, after all of this, the conversation turns to Jesus' impending departure from the world. It turns to a conversation about how Peter is going to betray him, how Judas, or how Peter is going to deny him, how Judas is going to betray him, that, that Jesus is getting ready to leave, that this is sort of the end of their relationship as it was, that Jesus is no longer going to be walking around on the earth the way that they have been experiencing him, but he's going to be leaving them. And as you can imagine, this causes incredible anxiety. It would cause incredible anxiety for any one of us. They're nervous. What are we going to do without you, Jesus? How are we going to follow you if we don't know where you're going? That is the question that Thomas asks. His question is not, tell us why Christianity is the one and only true religion, or tell us why all non-Christians are on the highway to hell. His question is, how are we to follow you? How are we to know the way without you here with us? And that's when Jesus says to them, I am the way, the truth, and the life. That this response, I think, is a, a response to the question of what are we to be doing while you're gone? And Jesus says, you are to be committed to the way, the truth, and the life that I have showed you. That you are to abide with and connect with me. It's one of the great themes of the Gospel of John, abiding with and connecting with Christ. Abiding with and connecting with this way of love that he's shown for the world. That what we're supposed to be doing while he's gone is not wondering whether or not other religions are going to hell or not. Rather, to be showing love, to notice those that nobody notices. It is to, to kneel down and to wash the feet of the world. It is to fulfill the love command. It is to continue to seek justice and equity, what Jesus called the kingdom of God. That is what we are supposed to be doing. That is what we are called to do while Jesus is away. That is what we are called to do while Jesus is away. Dwell with him, to show love and compassion to every single person. I think the great irony for me, for those who taught me growing up, is that the more that I have dwelled and abided with Christ, the more I've tried and failed and tried again to do that, the more open my life has become to those of other faiths. The more I've seen the beauty and the truth that is contained with other religions that are not Christianity the more that I have grown in my connection with Christ as I've interacted with those people. Um, it has not, it's removed from me that desire to convert other people. That World Religions 101 book is long gone. Um, I no longer sit in movie theaters with interfaith groups of people watching The Passion of the Christ, secretly hoping that this will convert them. But rather, I've learned to dwell more fully with Christ as I've interacted with those different faiths. They have helped to make me, I think, a better Christian. That sometimes I'm filled with what Barbara Brown Taylor calls holy envy. A little envy of the, some of the practices that other faiths engage in. 
like the, the time that I was driving back to, uh, to school from spring break, and um, I stopped at a rest stop along the way, and um, there was a, a Muslim man rolling out his prayer mat right along with the parking lot, ready to pray. In rural Indiana, of all places, a place where it might be a little bit dangerous for him to do something like that. And yet, it was inspiring to me. I, I travel like any dad wants to travel. I want to get there as fast as I possibly can, right? No bathroom breaks, right, dads? And yet there, was, there he was, taking time to stop and to pray. Um, I have been deeply impacted by uh, my interactions with Jewish folks, with both the, the rabbi chaplains in the hospital that I served at and also my Jewish patients. I, I'll never remember one patient I went to go visit. I knocked on the door and she saw me there and she immediately freaked out because she knew I was a Christian pastor. And she's like, the rabbi was just here. And um, she thought I was there to convert her. And so I, after I said, I'm not here to convert you, I'm just here to talk. Um, she let me come in and sit down and have a conversation with her. And um, what ensued was this beautiful conversation where she told me all about um, her synagogue and how important it was to her. And um, I came back the next day and I knocked on the door and um, her family was in the room that time. And when I knocked on the door, she goes, oh, this is Pastor Andy, <laughs> um, the nicest Christian I've ever met. And I was like, well, <laughs> um, what an honor to be given that designation, I suppose. Um, but it made me wonder about hospitality and wondering if someone else might experience that same sort of hospitality for me as a Christian uh, towards, uh, towards them. You know, growing up watching my, my Muslim friends fast during Ramadan, even while the rest of us were eating in the lunchroom in the cafeteria at school, that was inspiring. There are times in my life where I, am, I, I hear God speaking more clearly through the words of, of the Sufi Muslim uh, Rumi or the Persian poet Hafez than I do from the Psalms. Don't burn me at the stake as a heretic. Um, sometimes I hear God speaking more clearly through the wisdom of other traditions than I do my own. Sometimes I feel closer to those of other traditions than I do other self-professing Christians. So what is Christian identity in a religiously pluralistic society? I think Christian identity is what it's always supposed to be about. It's to be about love and understanding, opening ourselves up to other traditions. I think that the answer is not to try to, to pull Christendom out of the clutches of history, nor is it simply to turn Christianity into some amorphous blob of spirituality where we lose the distinctives of our faith. It is instead to fulfill what Christ called us to do, that love command, to love one another as he has loved us. I think religious pluralism is an incredible gift to Christians, to Christians like us. It gives us an opportunity to, uh, to know that we can never contain God within, within any box, but allows us to continually be open to the new ways that God is speaking to us. Christian identity in a pluralistic society is to continue on in the way, the truth, and the life that Jesus has showed us, to live with compassion towards other people, even people of other faiths, to appreciate the wisdom that they offer to each and every one of us, and my hope is that as I've interacted with other faiths, as we interact with other faiths, is that as we grow, that we might offer the same sort of love, that people might experience a loving, compassionate, understanding Christ as they engage with us. Thanks be to God. Amen.